Scripture shapes the lives of millions of people around the world. Yet scriptures, both the Bible and the Quran, only gain meaning when they are interpreted by the human mind. Minding Scripture, a podcast from the Department of Theology at the University of Notre Dame, explores the meeting of reason with the scriptures of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. I am Gabriel Said Reynolds, Professor of Islamic Studies and Theology in the World Religions World Church Program at Notre Dame. Joining me today are the co-founders of the project, Professor Francesca Murphy. Hello. Professor Munim Suri. Hi. And we're also joined by a special guest, Professor Shadi Nasser. I'll introduce Professor Nasser briefly and then um, welcome him to the program. Professor Nasser is an Associate Professor of Arabic Studies at Harvard University in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. He previously taught at Yale and Cambridge in the UK. He works on the transmission history of the Quran, which will be, in fact, the topic of our conversation today, with a special focus on the tradition of the variant readings, standardization processes of the Quranic text, the Arabic language, and the early corpus of Arabic poetry. And he integrates, in fact, questions of transmission of the Quran and transmission of poetry. He's published a number of articles on these topics in two books dedicated to the study of the variant readings of the Quran. The first is The Transmission of the Variant Readings of the Quran, The Problem of Tawattur, and The Emergence of Shawaz, which was published by Brill in 2012. And a second book to be published any day entitled The Second Canonization of the Quran, in this work, Professor Nasser studies the transmission and reception of the Quranic text and its variant readings through the work of Ibn Mujahid, the founder of the system of the seven eponymous readings of the Quran. So welcome, Professor Nasser. Uh, thank you so much, Gabriel. Thank you, uh, Francesca and uh, Munam, for having me um, on this uh, podcast. And uh, it's an honor. And uh, I look forward to uh, having a great conversation on uh, the topic today. Thank you. Terrific. Yeah, we look forward to that as well. We're going to be speaking about the transmission of the Quran, and um, we'll sort of begin at the beginning with questions of how you get from a revealed text to a physical text. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd like to actually um, ask a question about an anecdote, um, Professor Nasser, that you relate right at the beginning of the introduction of your first book, The Transmission of the Variant Readings, right. where you speak of a story that took place in a Sunni neighborhood mm-hmm. in Beirut, Lebanon, mm-hmm where a, um, an imam or sheikh mm-hmm. um, recites the first surah of the Qur'an. Could, mm-hmm. could you sort of recount that story briefly to us and uh, explain how it's connected to the book? Sure, sure. Um, so, um, I mean, this anecdote, actually, it's one of, uh, of many um, in which, um, uh, you know, Muslims now, uh, in the Arab and Muslim world in general, they are accustomed to um, uh, one or let's say a couple of um, reading styles in the Quran. Um, however, in the Islamic tradition, we do have um, uh, many reading styles, or what we call variant readings or system readings. And uh, what happens is that when um, uh, when Muslims listen to other styles which they are not accustomed to, um, they you know, say to themselves, what's this? This is not what I have been taught, or this is not what I hear the Quran. And this anecdote is basically um, uh, one of those incidents when um, there is, there was, you know, this uh, this sheikh uh, who was reciting the Quran in uh, a Kufan system reading. It's called the reading of Hamza or Al-Kisai from, uh, from Kufa. And, uh, so Kufa, the city in Iraq, in Iraq one of the traditional exactly. sites where... Exactly. Uh, particular reading styles was exactly. centered. Exactly. 
and um, and actually, you know, the common reading which we uh, which Muslims are accustomed to now it also comes from Kufa, but it's in a different style. So um, that specific style of Hamza and Kisai, it has a very strong accent on the long vowels. So instead of saying ah, you would say a. Eh. You know, you slant it this way. And this is a very peculiar accent in South Lebanon and actually in, in, in other areas in, in, um, in the south and also in the mountain in Lebanon. And what happened is that people, you know, got enraged in a, in a sense, like, why are you reciting the Quran this way? This is not what we are accustomed to. Um, and you find actually this kind of uh, anecdote also in classical sources where many people would uh, advise uh, Quran reciters to recite in a way in which the people of that specific area uh, are accustomed to. Otherwise, people right. will start, you know, saying we are we did not learn the Quran in that way. We learned it, you know, this way. So why is this person reciting um, the Quran in this weird or particular way? And there, there was the bit about the particular word sirat, exactly, meaning path, which was recited not with a so sound but a, a z sound. Is that it? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, so in the in the Islamic and uh, the variant reading tradition, you have the word uh, the the word sirat path, uh, which comes from I guess from Latin street, right? So strata, right? Um, which is a foreign word. Um, so, in the variant uh, tradition, we have a scene with with the s. And you have a sop, emphatic uh, S, and then you have in between, which is seen on Saad, Hdina Zirat al Mustaqim. So, um, and then people, again, you know, in that specific incident, like, why are you saying Zirat? It should be Sirat or Sirat. Um, and then when people are hearing, you know, sounds which are not accustomed to, they uh, start questioning uh, the reliability of that. You know, person who was reciting, and this sheikh was actually a, a certified uh, professional Quran reciter. He wasn't just an amateur. So I think we're going to turn to Francesca now about the traditional idea. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So um, my question is: Could you describe for our listeners the traditional idea of how the Quran was recorded? We know that by Islamic tradition, God sent the angel Gabriel to reveal the Quran to mm-hmm. Muhammad but what happened after that okay that's a uh, <laughs> it's a very difficult question so um, um, so this if I could interrupt you before yeah. you begin yes please um, my kind of understanding was that the angel Gabriel dictated the Quran and Muhammad wrote it down I thought he told him right, and I imagine that that's if it's a misconception. I imagine it's a common misconception. So, if you could begin your answer from that point onwards, that would be helpful. Right. Okay. So, um, so let's start with a with a with a disclaimer in a sense that you know in the Islamic tradition we do have so many different positions and opinions concerning you know the nature of revelation concerning even the collection of the quran etc so um so anything you know i say now it's going to be uh what i would call a mainstream um so you know but just you know bear in mind that there are also other uh, opinions and other scholars who would you know say otherwise so back to the question of the Quran, whether um, what happened after the revelation. So I think the the verse or the notion you are referring to is um, 
you know, the first revelation when, when Gabriel came and told uh, Muhammad to read, right? Iqra. Uh, uh, so that's the, the tradition. So, and there are many traditions trying to explain this incident, right? One of them is, you know, Gabriel had a scroll with him. And they, there are even descriptions of that scroll uh, where, you know, he held a scroll and then he told Muhammad read, um, which, you know, um, it's, it's, it's partially an, an answer um, uh, to your question that the Quran in essence was written in a scroll and what, you know, the Muslim tradition would call it, you know, the preserved tablet. You know, the Quran is fixed somehow in a tablet or, or in, a, in a scroll and then Gabriel was just you know, performing, you know, this written text to the prophet. Um, so that's that's a tradition. But generally speaking, in in, in how we read, you know, the um, uh, you know the story of the prophet or uh, the interpretation of the verses or how the Quran um, was recited to Muslims back then, uh, it was mostly uh, an an orally recited text. Uh, so we do have some incidents or we do have some accounts where some of the companions of Muhammad used to write verses down. But in essence, most of the accounts we have tell us that in, in essence, the Quran was orally recited among early Muslims. Um, and we don't, you know, we do have very weak narrations about the Prophet collecting the Quran himself. So we do have a couple of accounts saying that he had some scribes and then he would tell him he would tell those scribes where to put this verse and you know do, uh, do to arrange the quran or the verses in a certain way but they are not reliable accounts compared to later accounts um so we still believe that you know the, the that the prophet died without having the quran collected in a book or in a scroll or in a manuscript as it was collected later on so, so again, the generally speaking, we when we talk about the Quran, even the the word Quran itself, if we don't want to talk the, we, we do not want to consider the other etymology of the word. It comes from Aramaic or from Syriac or you know or from from some uh, classical pre-Islamic Arabic word. It essentially means to read. It's qara'a, the word qara'a in Arabic, which means to read. So the Quran is the read aloud text. That's the traditional interpretation of it. Um, at a certain point, it became a written transmission. Uh, we will talk about that, I guess, you know, later. Um, but fundamentally, uh, the Quran is an oral text. Um, people memorized it. It was uh, transmitted mouth to mouth at the beginning, despite many of many other accounts, reliable and unreliable, that the Quran was recorded um, uh, by some of the scribes who knew how to read and write back then. Um, did I answer the question? Um, I guess so. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, um, so to put it simply, so that when we talk about the Quran, we are not talking about a, um, about a book, which was, uh, again, regardless how, what, what you think, what you think about the origins of the Quran or who wrote it, uh, whether one wants to say, well, Muhammad wrote it, uh, or, uh, God revealed it to Muhammad. Um, we do not think of the Quran as a book which was written by a person who sat down and copied it. And then afterwards, people starting started studying it or memorizing it. 
so the Quran is a kind of um, uh, revelations, uh, sermons, um, collection of verses taught by the Prophet or recited by the Prophet to his followers. And it was not, you know, a collected book where people after him uh, started copying it and memorizing it. And according to Islamic sources, uh, the first, you know, all these verses which were scattered among, among his companions, they were collected 30 or 35 years afterwards, according to, again, the narrative in the Islamic tradition. Okay, I understand. Yeah. Uh, Sadi, this is Monim. Um, yes. As, as we know that, you know, Muslim in general believe that the Quran is the word of God, word for word. Mm -hmm. um, why is it recited differently? Uh, where, do, where do these differences come from? Okay, so, um, uh, so the Quran is the word of God. Um, again, this is the general um, um, premise. Uh, we are not talking about differences within Islamic theology. Some Muslims believe that, uh, right, it's the, you know, the Mu'tazila, you know, the rational group in, in Islam that it was created. It's not the speech of God. But let's talk about the mainstream uh, view that the Quran is the word of God. Um, so before answering that, we have to understand that there were differences in recitations. Now, why? We can talk about that later. But what happened is that when the Quran was collected, uh, Muslims were uh, reciting the Quran in different ways. Um, uh, whether these different ways because of um, uh, problems in memorization, whether because uh, they received you know, different uh, revelation from the Prophet, whether it was because of dialects, we, we still don't know. It's up you know, for questions. We can talk about that later. Uh, but that was, you know, Munaim's question is, you know, it's the question that theologians tried to tackle later on. So if we have all these variant readings and the Quran is the word of God, uh, so how do we deal with that? How do we deal with those, you know, variant readings? Uh, especially when some uh, readings um, uh, have different meanings and it's not just only a matter of dialect, right? Uh, so let's say when you want to say, uh, you know, in the last chapter of the Quran, well, you would say, God, um, I seek refuge from God, from the evil he created, right? And then yeah. you would have another reading which says, in the passive, from the evil which was created. Okay. So um, now this second reading, it became an irregular reading. It's not now part of the <clears throat> canonical readings. Uh, but then there is a difference in meaning here. And if we uh, consult, you know, commentaries on the Quran, we would find theologians uh, tackle this problem. Is it, uh, does God create evil or evil is created on its own? So that's a very, you know, important theological uh, point <clears throat> that was, you know, displayed or exhibited within, you know, the, the, uh, the tradition of the variant readings. Um, uh, Sadi, can, can I intervene on the, the variant reading of the Quran? Yeah. Uh, because there is a, a famous hadith, hadith mm -hmm. means a statement or action attributed to the Prophet, that the Quran was revealed in uh, Sabbath Ahruf, mm -hmm. meaning seven mood, as you yes. rendered. Mm -hmm. uh, can, can you explain this hadith? Uh, sure. So to connect it to the previous question, so we have now, uh, we do know from the sources that Muslims were reciting in different ways. Um, yes. Uh, and now we come to the question of the chicken or the egg. So which came 
first, uh, do we have a statement, a real statement, authentic statement from the Prophet in which he said, well, the Quran was revealed in seven different modes or seven different ways. Therefore, you can read in any of those ways. Therefore, we do have those variant readings. They are legitimate. They are licensed, you know, licensed by God. Uh, or it's the other way around, where you do have variant readings, and then a hadith was fabricated, uh, like many other hadiths. We can't talk now about fabrication of hadith, but we do know that fabrication of hadith was, was a phenomena. Or this hadith was fabricated in order to legitimize and explain the variant readings that we have in the tradition, right? Uh, so this hadith or this statement by the Prophet that the Quran was revealed in seven different ways, we don't have any uh, clear explanation by Muslim scholars what uh, what does a mode or what does a harf mean. Uh, there are more than 30 different interpretations of this statement. There's really no consensus whatsoever on what it means. Um, some people said even it means, you know, that the Quran has seven different esoteric meanings or different interpretations. Uh, some people said it has to do with commands, prohibitions, um, you know, etc. And other people said, well, seven different modes, it means those variant readings or those different ways of reciting the Quran. Uh, and this is, you know, became the, uh, I don't want to say a consensus, but this became, let's say, the majority of scholars would would uh, associate uh, the, the seven readings and more. We have 10 readings or 14 readings with the idea that the Quran could be recited and could be read in multiple ways. In the seven Aharuf. Could, could I ask, this is Gabriel again, mm -hmm. um, if we could just take a step back because I'm worried. This, this is actually um, pretty complicated, yes. especially for people who are hearing these ideas for the first time, right? So we have this hadith, mm -hmm. this saying of the Prophet Muhammad, in which he says, well, maybe you could give it to us exactly if you know what I mean. The Quran was revealed in, in Sabat Ahruf or Al Ahruf al Sabah. Yeah, so Unzil al Quran ala Sabat Ahruf. So it was revealed according to seven different modes. And if you translate that literally, mm -hmm. beginning students of Arabic will know that the, the word Ahruf is the plural of the word Harf, mm -hmm. which means literally letter. Correct. But, but you argue it can't be a letter here. Right. It, it, it doesn't. It's not. No, no. It doesn't make any sense. No one would say that. You know, it means a letter. It just. Uh, and this is why the the closest translation to it, I think Jeffrey uh, translated it as mode, uh, because it doesn't mean letter. It just means um, a way, uh, a way of recitation or you know mode. Um, um, you know. Yeah. So it doesn't mean letter exactly. So. And mm. and when you speak about the chicken or the egg problem, mm -hmm. you're comparing the the real um, historical phenomenon of variant readings mm -hmm. or systems of readings mm -hmm. and the possibility that they are connected to this hadith, basically. Uh, correct, because they are, that, they, are, yeah. they, they are connected. The, the people, scholars, you know, had to connect them together because you, don't, you can't have variant readings. What is what the only uh, legitimate uh, reason for having variant readings is this hadith. Yeah. Okay, okay, so can I ask a question then? Yes, I'm yes, trying yes. to understand what, what we're saying here. Are you saying that the Quran was not transmitted in written form after Muhammad? It was initially transmitted in oral form. Okay. And this led to variants. And the variants were explained through this hadith, 
the the Quran is is revealed in many ways, seven ways. Okay, is that right? I, yes, very. Have I got it? Yes, uh, <laughs> yes, yes. Very important and legitimate question, and this is actually the the crux of the matter: written versus oral transmission. Um, if you ask any Muslim scholar, you know, from the traditional uh, uh, perspective, uh, there is always emphasis that the Quran is orally transmitted. No one will tell you that the Quran is uh, transmitted via written form. Uh, the Quran was memorized by by Muslims uh, down to the uh, down to the letter. Uh, it was memorized by the whole, you know, nation or the whole, you know, Muslim um, uh, population. You know, early Muslims. And the written form is just uh, a way uh, to uh, limit variations. Okay, so it was just a, an, a you know, a uh, something to help people uh, memorize the text. But the the principal method is oral transmission and memorization. Okay, can I ask a couple of questions before you, you yes. go on with yes. that? Because obviously you've got to you you got to understand that I'm here. I'm I'm on this panel as an ignorant person, mm -hmm. right? And I'm just trying to make sure that the audience can understand. Sure. So I just want to ask a couple more ignorant questions before you go on. Yes, it sounds very interesting, but I've just got to get this clear mm -hmm. because the basic sort of image which non-Muslims have mm -hmm. of Islam is when they're in the mosque and they're kind of like bowing down in front of the book, mm -hmm. the physical book. And so, you know, one time there was a, an earthquake in Pakistan mm -hmm. and I made a collection in the Catholic Church in Aberdeen and brought some money. And I thought, well, they're going to be there on Friday. Mm -hmm. So I physically walked into the mosque after they'd finished. Mm -hmm. um, my brother can't believe that I walked into this mosque in my shoes, my head uncovered, <laughs> carrying these bags of money. But I did. And there was just one guy in there and all, he was alone and he was just bowing down, mm -hmm. swaying and bowing in front of this book. Right. And I'm sure that other uh, non-Muslims, that's their picture of Islam, yes. is that they're kind of people who venerate a book. Yes. Um, so the, this, I mean, obviously, as a, as, a, as a Catholic scholar, I know hundreds of theories about the oral transmission of the Old Testament and the New Testament. But to me, I'm kind of surprised to hear what you're saying because we think of Islam as the religion of the book. It's the basic yeah. picture we have. No, no, thank you. This is this is a great question, and uh, you know, this is one of the uh, one of the problems I think in, in interpreting the tradition and to see how uh, the certain many ideas in Islam and I'm sure in in, in, in different religions they just evolve over time. Uh, this veneration for the scripture, this veneration for the book, it was not the case in the early period of Islam. Uh, actually, most scholars, they rejected the idea of writing down the Quran on paper. And they did not want the Quran to be written on paper. They actually rejected and vehemently opposed the idea of voweling the text. But mm -hmm. when the text was written, uh, they wanted to vowel it because people can't read without vowels and diacritics. And many scholars objected to writing vowels um, in the same manner as the consonantal text. They said, well, you write the consonantal text in one color and you write the vowels in other colors so that you don't mix the two. So, so the idea of venerating the scripture or venerating the, the book, it was not the case in the early period. Only when uh, written transmission dominated and then the Quran, you know, what they gathered between what we call between the two covers 
and the consensus of Muslims and Muslim scholars said, well, okay, the Quran now is that which is between the two covers, people started venerating the scripture as, you know, a holy object uh, in which the word of God is written. Um, so this is a, uh, you know, it depends when we are talking um, and it depends uh, on the progression and evolution, you know, of uh, certain ideas within Islam. Um, after written transmission dominated uh, knowledge, you know, in general, I think uh, memory and memorization is receding. And then people, exactly as you are saying, they started venerating the book as an object. And then you started to have, you know, all these different, you know, the calligraphy, de you know, development of calligraphy, um, um, uh, decorations, uh, uh, you know, uh, spending 20, 30 years of your life making one copy of the Quran. This is all, uh, I don't want to say modern, but this is post 10th century Islam. And it's not how it used to be in the first 200 years, at least how the sources describe it for us. Okay, I'm sorry those were really basic questions, yes. but I think we had to, it was helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, Sadi, can, can I go back to the question of uh, variant reading of the Quran? Yes. Um, can you talk about um, how to distinguish between what readings are canonical and non-canonical? Yes. And what criteria that scholars use to distinguish between the two? Sure. So, um, uh, let's say up to the 900s, Okay, so mid 10th century, uh, there was no standard system or there was, you know, no, um, uh, uh, there was no collection or even a statement by religious scholars or political authority to say, well, uh, the only valid readings of the Quran are those or this. There right. were many readings circulating uh, within Muslims. Um, not only seven, there were, according to sources, there were, you know, 15, 24, even, you know, a later scholar, his name is Al-Hudali, he collected a book and called it the 50 variant readings of the Quran, okay? Um, so this multiplicity caused a problem. You know, you don't want the Quran to be read in 50 different ways. And then, you know, this man, Ibn Mujahid, uh, came, he died in 324, 936, uh, AD, and then he selected what we now call the seven um, system or canonical readings of the Quran. Uh, but Ibn Jah sorry, Ibn Jahid is not the first to collect Vedan reading, isn't it? He's not the first one. There were there were attempts before him. There were Tabari, the great uh, you know exegete and commentator. He had a book on variant readings. Uh, you know Abu Ubaid, another scholar. He had uh, a book on twenty-five variant readings. There were other collections. He was not the first one to do that. But right. what seemed to happen with Ibn Mujahid that he was uh, closely connected to the court. He was aided by the vizier at that time. Uh, people who opposed him, there were many scholars who opposed Ibn Mujahid's idea to only limit the variant readings to seven. So two of his rivals or two of the people who opposed him, they were tried in the court. They were flogged, put in prison. And there was, uh, I don't want to say an enforced um, decree to only... Uh, use those seven readings, but it became, since that period, uh, the system of Ibn Mujahid dominated uh, other systems. Um, that being said, many other scholars after Ibn Mujahid, they still wrote manuals on Qiraat, on variant readings, uh, seven, eight readings, nine readings, 10, 11, 12, 13. Um, so it took time 
for Ibn Mujahid's system to really settle down and for Muslims to um, adopt it. Um, so back to the question, what is canonical and what is not, uh, again, back to the time period. Before Ibn Mujahid, there was no such thing as canonical and non-canonical. Uh, all varied readings were there. Uh, there was a, um, a vague consensus among scholars what to read and what not to read. But post that period, the consensus of the Muslim community uh, agreed that those seven, we would consider them canonical, uh, transmitted to us via tawatur, which means sound transmission that you know cannot be proven to be wrong. All other readings outside this system of the seven started to be uh, deemed as irregular, anomalous, i.e. This, this is a term that appears, yeah, the shawath, or, yeah, that Correct. appears in the title of your book. Correct. So the right. idea of shawath, something that, you know, I, I argued for is that it is also a flex, not, I don't say flexible, but it, it changes. The, the What is considered shawath now, irregular or anomalous, it was not, you know, anomalous 200 or 300 years ago. So by the same token, before Ibn Mujahid, what was considered to be anomalous, it became anomalous after Ibn Mujahid. People were reciting the anomalous readings before Ibn Mujahid in the mosque uh, liturgically. Um, and because there was no official decree or there was no official consensus by legal scholars to say, well, we, you, ha you only have to stick to the seven readings. So this is where you get to the curious uh, situation where someone like... Um Tabari, mm -hmm. who we mentioned is, you know, the, the great historian and exegete, um, is looked on by some later Muslim scholars as problematic for the way he negotiated the question of the of the readings. Sure, because because yeah. the, because Tabari and many other early scholars they don't fall within this uh, fixed paradigm or the, this fixed, you know, what became later on the consensus. He falls outside the consensus. And remember, consensus is always a retroactive thing. There was no such thing as, oh, now in the year 320 you know, or 936, uh, all Muslim scholars agreed on something. It doesn't happen this way. Consensus... I, I wonder... Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry to interrupt, but I wonder, I was going to just ask Francesca something, because it, it seems roughly analogous to the way that certain early church figures, I'm thinking of Origen in particular, said things which, from a later perspective, after certain councils had been mm -hmm. had taken place and things, look problematic, maybe even heretical, but at the time, we're part of a sort of, I don't know, diverse, ongoing conversation. I mean, not about biblical readings, sure. per se, mm -hmm. but about theological matters. I don't know, does that make sense? No, or what I, I guess... Um the, the the most analogous thing I can think of is the notion of the oral transmission of the Old Testament over many centuries. To me, that's the way I'm kind of getting hold of what you're saying. And, and my question would be then, when do they have a fixed Quran? At what point, like it's written down and you can't, like one version is out and these versions are in. At what point do they exclude some versions? I mean, do they have a council? I mean, how do they... Because another of my conceptions is that there's no major authority in Islam that could say this is the Quran. 
So, Shadi, before you answer, I'm mm-hmm. going to just leave the, that question out there and build the tension. Because <laughs> okay, I, think yeah, we're, sure. I think we're about halfway through our conversation. Sure. Friends, this is a good time to review and rate uh, Minding Scripture. We're going to take a break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Minding Scripture. I think we left off with Francesca's question about when orthodoxy in terms of readings was enforced. I mean, when, when did it, when did it um, come to be the case that uh, you could read the Quran in a certain way, but not in other ways? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so I would say um, roughly by the 800s. Um, by the 800s, uh, definitely post, you know, the beginning of the 4th uh, century, Islamic calendar that is, you know, 10th century, uh, uh, strong opinions within Muslim scholars um, uh, where uh, to the extent that you only have to read the Quran uh, in those seven, you know, or eight or nine different ways. Um, I would say with the 800s, Muslim scholars, there was also a unanimous agreement that you should follow the readings uh, that agree with the uh, codex or with the Quran that the third caliph of man collected. Uh, now, during this collection, there were um, uh, many codices that the companions of the prophet had. But what Uthman did is that he chose uh, one specific version of all these codices, which became now, you know, the official um, codex or the official Quran that Muslims follow since then. So after that period, which is um, you know, beginning, let's say, late 7th century, beginning of 8th century, uh, Muslim scholars started to uh, agree that the official Quran or the official way of reading should adhere to the uh, codex that Osman collected and people should not read according to the codices which Osman did not collect. Which is just, it's very um, important, I think, to underline that because it shows that not only for Muslim orthodoxy is there a doctrine about the soundness of the revelation given to the Prophet, mm-hmm. but also the soundness of the work that the third caliph did, right? You have, to, def- you have to defend that, in a sense. Correct, correct. And, and uh, of course, there were many objections to uh, the act uh, of Uthman, including other companions, like Ibn Mas'ud, for example, um, Ali bin Abi Talib, Ubay bin Ka'ab, they showed some hesitation to that act, but again, the consensus of the Muslim community is always strong. And what happened is that, you know, decades later, um, you know, the Muslim community uh, agreed that the codification or the codex by Uthman is the official one, and we should adhere to it. Uh, So this is, you know, we would say 800s, the idea that we should stick to uh, the Uthmanic version of the Quran uh, became um, the standardized or the official view of m- most mainstream Muslims. So I wanted to take us back a little bit, and I hope this is not becoming too confusing because mm-hmm. we're we're sort of passing through both theological and textual questions. Sure. So I wanted to return to a theological one, which is that you you spoke in your conversation with with Munin about the 
question of the seven modes. Mm -hmm. And that's not something that someone invented, at least from a traditional point of view. This is something mm -hmm. which the Prophet himself declared in mm -hmm. a, a hadith, which would suggest that the Quran is a pluriform text mm -hmm. in, in the sense that all of the modes are divine. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas some people today may have the idea that perhaps because, as you alluded to, only one of the variant readings mm -hmm. has become basically, with I guess an exception, but mm -hmm. essentially one has become standard today. Mm -hmm. But in the early centuries of Islam, the idea seems to have been that um, no, the, the Quran was revealed in different ways and they're all divine. Mm -hmm. um, is that right or is that overstating it? More or less, no. More or less, you are you are right. Um, you know, j just to to add to that, there's a. I think there's a different of perspectives, uh, both Western, Eastern, uh, also different perspectives. Perspectives, whether you are a theologian or a linguist, and how you look at the Quran. What I mean by that is that um, people outside Arabia, or I don't want to call just like Western and, and Western as of you know Europeans. They are accustomed to the idea of the book. Um, a book, you know, this is a revelation, the Quran, you know, Bible, New Testament, this is scripture, this is a book, and we follow the book as, you know, Masoretic text. This is, you know, what yes. the official version. We don't have this notion in, in Arabic, in, in the Quran. The idea of a book uh, that, you know, this is between the two covers, this is what we follow, and we have textual criticism to decide which version is right or wrong. This notion does not exist in, in the Arabic tradition. Um, so therefore, when we talk about multiplicity of readings, and you know, this brings me to poetry in a sense, the idea of variations in text, whether they are um, poetry or revelation, because you know, the Quran at the end of the day, it's a literary text, regardless how you think of it, you know, from a theological perspective, it is a literary text. As a linguist, you are expecting those variations because the language was not standardized there was no writing back then. There was no idea of putting things down in a book. So to actually say that we have only one version of, you know, of a written text, it's completely anachronistic, you know, to the Arabic tradition. Um, so uh, linguists and scholars back then, they were not expecting to have, you know, exactly one way of voweling or one way of reading the text. They were expecting multiplicity of readings. Now, as a theologian, you don't think this way. As a theologian, you are, you are only thinking of, well, this is the word of God. You know, what does it mean to have different ways of reading or different voweling or sometimes even different meaning? And it is a theological problem that was discussed, you know, by scholars uh, back then. Um, so, you know, a comparison that I, I, I would make to this, um, you know, again, it's not very similar, but... I don't know if any one of you is a you know classical music uh, you know listener or, or you know I I like classical music I you know like to follow different interpretations um, you know if you would say well you have a composer who wrote a symphony why do you have different interpretations you know of that symphony uh, sometimes you would listen to two recordings and then you would feel well this is really very different interpretations but the score is the same. It's exactly the same, but they play with different tempo. They sometimes do different arrangements to, you know, the, uh, you know, the orchestra. And, you know, more or less, I think of a consonantal text of the Quran in the same way. 
Well, you know, the Quran at the end of the day, it is a recited text. Now, how did the prophet recite or how did he receive it from Gabriel? We don't know. And what those readings are or what people were trying to do is that they are trying to, you are trying to annotate this kind of recitation into writing, which is very difficult to do. Uh, you can't, you know, annotate the, the um, you know, the, the technical um, aspects of recitation, you know, lengthening of vowels, assimilation, uh, you know, etc. into um, a, a language which has not been standardized yet. Um, so again, that's one of the, uh, you know, dichotomy, if you want, between the oral and the written, uh, and why, you know, it has been controversial uh, you know, since the first attempts to standardize the Quranic text slash its recitation. That's a very illuminating um, uh, uh, analogy with the music because it shows how even if you have a written score, the thing can be played or recited in entirely different ways and the meaning will be different. Right. And it, right. and it also shows, I think, that the Quran is a recited uh, thing, so that the experience of it is as recitation, and I think that will be a new thought to many of our listeners. Um, yeah. So I mean, again, there are you know you know certain of course differences you know per- performed art versus you know verbal art in a sense, yes. but you know to a certain extent you know I, I don't want to have, you know just generalize and make a percentage here, but I would say more than uh, 70%, 75% of those different system readings are really variations in uh, recitational form. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I would say 25, 30%, they are variations, you know, verbally, you know, um, uh, case endings, grammatical forms, etc. But those sy- different system readings, uh, they are really different in terms of how you perform the text and how you read it. Um, so, um, you know, even even sometimes the same conductor or the same pianist, you know, after mm-hmm. 20 or 30 years, they would have different interpretation of the same mm-hmm. piece, mm-hmm. which was actually the case of many Quran reciters. And this is why they had different students. And sometimes in the early period, the recitation of the Quran was different from the later period. Sometimes even uh, not just, you know, superficial differences between the recitation, but sometimes really different uh, principles of recitation. They were different from time to time. Okay. Now, you know, you've really illuminated the thing for me because I did not understand your opening anecdote when you talked about how the, the chap in, uh, the chap uh, who, who, who read the first surah differently. I sure. didn't understand how pronouncing it differently would matter because, you know, how you read the New Testament or the Old Testament in the Catholic Church doesn't really make any difference. I mean, if you have different pronunciations or whatever, it doesn't make any difference. You can't yeah. change it by reading it differently. Okay. Whereas I'm, the I'm Quran, happy if the yeah. idea is, is there. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. So that's really helpful. Thank you. Mm. That's complete. Yeah. Don't you think, Gabriel? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Should Should we go to the manuscript? Yes. Or yeah. Uh, no, Sadi. Um, I'm interested in um, uh, a practical dimension of variation in readings, um, sure. especially uh, with regard to how. Variant readings would lead to different meanings of the text of the Quran. Can you right. give examples, for instance, you know how Muslims differ on the reading that would result in, you know, in different legal rulings, for instance? Um, any example about that? 
Sure, sure. Uh, I think um, there, uh, let's see, there was a, uh, a book uh, by a Syrian scholar, Muhammad Habash, if I'm not mistaken, and another book by an Algerian, um, I think Hasib or Khairuddin Sib, if I'm not mistaken, Khairuddin Sib. They actually collected the variant readings, uh, which result in different legal rulings. And they are around, you know, 50 of them. Um, you know, if you read according to different reading, you would have a different legal ruling. Um, you know, for example, the famous one is the uh, ablution, you know, when you perform ritual uh, purity uh, before going to prayer. And, um, you know, uh, without going into grammatical detail, but, you know, if you read one variant in the accusative and you read one variant in the nominative, it will result in a different way of uh, washing your feet or wiping your feet. From a legal perspective, this is a big deal. You know, when you form, perform ablution, do you wash the feet or do you just wipe it? Uh, so that's a, you know, it's, it's, right. um, it's a very, um, there, there's even lengthy discussion, you know, between different legal schools, um, you know, on that specific matter. Um, and those both readings are canonical. So they are not one is anomalous and one is, uh, you know, both readings are accepted and both readings are considered to be canonical. What, um, what about the existing Quran? What version of, of the Quran do Muslim reading today? Uh, to, uh, so today, the dominant reading in the Muslim world is uh, what we call Hafs an Asim. So Hafs is the student of his master uh, Asim. So this is the dominant reading in the Muslim world today. It was not the case uh, 400 years ago, before the Ottomans. So before the Ottomans, there was another reading which was uh, more popular uh, in the, at least in the Arab world. So to mention today, um, we have Asim, Hafsa and Asim. You have in North Africa, Morocco, uh, for example, they read uh, Warsh which is the Medina reading, Warsh An-Nafa. So that's another reading from the rest of the Muslim world. Um, you have in Libya, they read Qalun An-Nafa. So that's also a Medina reading, but from a different uh, student. Uh, you have in Sudan, for example, and Somalia, they read uh, Basran reading, Abu Amr ibn al-Ala. So these are distinct you know, traditions. But right now, the dominant reading is uh, one of the three Kufan readings, which we call Hafsa Al-Asim. So, um, as you discussed earlier, that uh, that these variant readings uh, were taught by Muhammad himself during his lifetime, mm -hmm. um, what is the implication of perhaps you know someone who says something wrong about this variant reading? Um, sure. Would would that this you know have implication about you know the, the faith, for instance? Uh, sure. Again, this is you know different according to which time period we are discussing. Uh, there was a time period where uh, scholars would criticize uh, some of these uh, variant readings, whether even the whole system or even some individual particulars. So we, the, um, uh, the scholars uh, Gabriel mentioned before, at Tabari, for example, he was known to criticize some of those readings. He would say, well, this reading is not sound, it's not grammatical, I disagree with it. Mm -hmm. And the same with, with other scholars in the Islamic tradition. You know, Zamakhshari, for example, Ibn Atiyah, uh, Ibn Khaldun, to, to name some of those those who are familiar with these names. Um, however, the, uh, percep the perception changed. So when orthodoxy, you know, prevailed, and then Muslim uh, scholars started to 
propagate the idea that all seven readings are divine and canonical and there's no one reading better or inferior than other reading, then you started to have the legal scholars advocating for the idea that all seven readings uh, are divine, are revealed by God, are taught by the prophet. And if you deny the divine status of one reading, um, you would even verge, you know, um, on the uh, domain of being, you know, an unbeliever. Uh, so the, the point is you can't believe in one reading and not believe in the other. There's no, in a sense, there's no Quran without those seven readings. And this is what people, I think, should really understand. There's no, you know, you don't just have a score, right, without the performance. You need you need the performance. And uh, Hafs or Warsh or all those different readings, no one is better than the other. It just happened that people are more familiar with one uh, reading or one system over another. Okay. I'm going to ask one more really stupid question. Okay, just trying your patience here. Sure. Uh, in the 19th century, as I understand it, the phenomenon of uh, of, of Muslim fundamentalism came about, the mm -hmm. Wahhabi movement. Mm -hmm. And um, I wonder how that connects with the idea of seven readings. Do Muslim mm -hmm. fundamentalists accept that there are seven different ways of reading, or do they think there is only one? Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily pin that on any specific, you know, fundamentalist or non-fundamentalist or conservatives. Or it's yeah. this is, you know, the idea that you have um, uh, seven variant readings, all divine, all revealed by God. It's a notion accepted by most Muslims. Okay. Now, with variations, and yes. to, to what extent, right? Now, yes. what happened? I would say in the past. 200, 300 years, yes. um, more, mostly I would say in the past 150, 200 years, is that there is a um, uh, there is an attempt to have a unanimous uh, view of the integrity of the Quranic text. Because there were other groups who were saying, well, wait a minute, what do you mean that you know the Quran uh, is um, uh, is not falsified or is not preserved, and you know it was um, uh, revealed. Uh, by to the prophet uh, and people memorized it verbatim when you have all these variant readings so i would say there was a reaction uh, to that you know um, uh, to those arguments where you know some muslims many some i, I can't put a percentage here uh, i would say they put an, an emphasis you know on the whole divine notion of the seven readings that you know those seven readings in their particulars and the same and even their um, you know the way that you know you recite them uh, they were divinely communicated from God to Gabriel to the prophet and this I just I think it's so interesting because yeah. on the one hand we hear sometimes apologetic rhetoric about um, unlike the Bible um, <laughs> Every copy of the Quran around the world is the same, and you've given some examples from Africa, which show sure. it's not exactly the case. Sure. But then, on the other hand, there um, it's just as orthodox, and actually, maybe or more orthodox to say no. Actually, it's a pluriform text with mm -hmm. the seven different readings. I have um, a uh, a version of the Mushaf or the mm -hmm. the Quranic text, which through a color system indicates. Um, all the variations for the yes. seven different readings and yes. and yes. this is 
not produced in the West by some Orientalist no, 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 no. trying to complicate things, but it's coming from the Islamic world. No, I 100% agree with you. And I really think, you know, this, um, uh, uh, you know, this is, you know, in the past 150 years, it was really politicized. Um, and, you know, Muslim apologists uh, in, you know, trying to basically, uh, you know, defend uh, against, you know, Orientalists and, you know, uh, scholars who were trying to um, criticize the integrity of the Quran. Um, I think, you know, they, uh, I don't want to say they, they were not saying things that did not exist in the tradition, but I think they were cherry picking in some of the arguments from the tradition, and they were not really uh, explaining uh, how the whole notion of the variant readings or preservation of the Quranic text uh, evolved over time. And it was just like as if it was a static notion that the Quran, you know, was um, uh, was preserved. Uh, it was uh, not falsified. It's verbatim transmitted to the Muslim community as is. And regardless of how minuscule these variations are from one codex to another, they exist. And Muslim scholars for hundreds of years, they acknowledged that. They were not, they were saying, well, look, we do have variations. We don't have a problem with that. Right. Uh, right. So when someone comes and tell you, well, no, there are no variations. Well, that's not accurate. It's more complicated. I had two more questions. I don't know if my colleagues... I'm good. I'm, I've really been illuminated by this discussion so far. I, I'll try to ask them briefly. One sure. is, what are the implications for this for work on manuscripts? Um, if, and maybe to pose a question in a more provocative way, um, what if someone finds a manuscript, we have the case of the famous Sanaa sure. manuscript from Yemen, that has a new reading that's not attested to in any of the seven systems of readings established or at least um, affirmed by Ibn Mujahid. Um, does that matter or does manuscript evidence from a Muslim point of view um, not add anything because th th we know what the seven qiraat or seven readings are and that's it? Well, okay, so let's again, you know, uh, start with the same analogy of music. So let's say now we discovered an early version of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, which is different from the standard, you know, mm -hmm. version. Mm -hmm. um, is it, it is going to be performed, someone will record it, but is it going to be the dominant performance of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony? I doubt it, right? Uh, you know, if, you know, so I would say, again, I don't want to make, you know, this comparison between, you know, uh, between music and Quran in that sense, but the, the, the issue is that uh, variations in textual variations in the Quran, they were attested in Muslim scholars. We do have information about uh, about textual variations. It's not only a matter of performance. Even order of the verses, order of the chapters, word differences, they were attested in Muslim sources. The, the issue is that Muslim scholars, again, right or wrong, um, that's another issue, they already agreed that the canonical version that we Muslims are going to recite from now on is limited to those seven or ten different versions. So great for us, you know, scholars, academics, textual critics, we do want to find manuscripts and see how, you know, the text of the Quran developed, uh, etc. Uh, so from an academic perspective, it's great to find these uh, manuscripts. However, from a theological perspective, it's right. not going right. to change the perception of right. Muslims. Oh, right. Sure, yeah, we do have a, a Sana'a manuscript or a manuscript with different, you know, variants, but sure, these are anomalous. Yes. Okay. We don't, we don't, we are not going to recite them anymore. 
and then I'd just like to conclude with another <clears throat> anecdote from your book that comes at the end, not the beginning. Yeah. Um, from your 2012 book, where you speak about how um, Ali ibn Abi Talib, mm-hmm. the son-in-law and cousin of the Prophet, and the first um, Imam for the Shia and the fourth Caliph, he um, reaches a point in the Quran with this phrase, "Watalhin mandud." Yes. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, apparently, the word "talh." Mm-hmm. Is means a thorny tree, mm-hmm. and this this caused some trouble. And he said, "Well, this is this is problematic. We can't have a thorny tree in this place in the Quran." Um, c- could you explain a little bit what the issue I mean, is there? Sure, he's saying that God is going to God is promising the the believers with you know lush green meadows and heavens and and fruit and thorny uh, plants. So Ali ibn Abi Talib was saying, what does thorny plants have to do with fruit and lush rivers and, you know, meadows? It should be, it, this is wrong. It should be tala with a ayn, with another letter, which means a fruit. It probably was the banana, you know, back then there was, you know, in the commentary, it means banana, tala mandud, which makes more sense. And then someone asked him, should we change it, you know, to, to what you are saying? And Ali ibn Abi Talib said, no, you can't change the Quran anymore. It's as fixed as you, you keep it as is. Um, so, uh, and Ali ibn Abi Talib, he was, of course, one of the companions, and um, so he was an authority in that sense. But again, the consensus of the community was way stronger, you know, than the individual opinions of scholars or even uh, companions of the, of the Prophet. And despite his reading um, makes more sense semantically, uh, he kept it as is. I don't change you know, as a philologist, I'm, I'm sticking to the text. I'm not going to change it. Yeah. Got it. Okay, thank you. Any final words, Francesca Munian? No, that was very helpful. Okay. Thank yeah. you. I learned a lot from that conversation. Th- thank you so much, Yadi. Thank you so much. You thank, you. thank you. Thank you. And, uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. Hopefully, uh, um, you know, I conveyed some of those thoughts uh, without being too technical. But unfortunately, it's a very technical topic. So uh, uh, I tried my best. Yeah. Thank you for your patience. Thank you. Thank you, friends. Thank you, Mona. I'm nice to meet you all. Yeah. Thank you. Friends, thank you for joining us. And be sure to be with us for the next episode of Mining Scripture, where divine word and human reason meet.